from the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything. All the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings and how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change and above all, how everything is interconnected? Talking about mass vaccinating the economy, it's a buzzword, but it also has some really important implications for how we think about government and the economy and infrastructure in our cities. I really hope that the work that we're doing now means that the future is brighter and more equal for um, a whole host of people from different backgrounds, genders, economic situations. Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers, our metaphorical vantage point, giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity, all from the moon. I think that that's the kind of design that's going to take us into the next level, and we're just going to look back at this period, incredibly wasteful and arrogant period of um, domination of nature and think it was just completely crazy. In the last episode, we imagined a world without human beings, a dystopic or utopic vision, depending on how you look at it. The premise was that for whatever reason, human societies failed in some way and extinction was the result. Thankfully, we as humans haven't quite got there yet. And as a means to look to the future, however long or short that might be, on this, the last episode of Series 1 of From the Moon, we look at hope. Can we look to the future with any sense of hope? Can innovation and the harnessing of human potential make us hopeful? In an age of activism and renewed social awareness, is it even enough to passively talk about hope? Should we be actively going about achieving a better planet rather than simply hoping for it? Our first guest on this episode seven is Joseph Grima, architect, curator, and founder of Space Caviar, an architecture and design research studio. Always at the cutting edge of architectural innovation, this year Joseph has focused his attention on what he calls non-extractive architecture, with an accompanying exhibition going by that very name to coincide with the Venice Architecture Biennale. The show, which represents work of many younger studios, is part of rejecting what Grima has called cookie-cutter modernism, instead choosing to focus on conserving or reusing finite resources. We'll find out about that later in the show, but first of all, does Joseph Grima have reasons to be hopeful about the future of design? If anything... <laughs> Looking around us, I think there's more um, re reason than ever for desperation, but at the same time, there's also more reason for hope. It's almost like a, uh, it becomes extreme, in, but more extreme in both ways. 
Um, but I think that what is interesting about the present moment is that there's a sense of accelerated transformation, uh, the sense that things are changing more quickly than they had over um, uh, a certain period of time. So in term, in over the last, uh, for example, century, and um, thinking about uh, again the the uh, post-industrial uh, revolution era, I think that this is possibly um, the time in which fundamental principles of more or less everything are being questioned most substantially. Uh, so going to your question, like what is there to be hopeful about right now? I think that the biggest hope is uh, tip humans tend to automatically somehow by default um, put their uh, biggest hopes and faith in technology. Uh, and I think that there is a lot of hope that we can uh, get from looking in that direction. But I think that is in a way the problem that we've put too much uh, of our eggs in the technological basket in a way uh, to the point that we almost kind of force ourselves into this loop of um, dependency on uh, the precisely a thing that in many ways is causing the problem in the first place to get us out of it. And I think that what I would like to see as hope is something that kind of comes before the moment of um, uh, technical or technological transformation, which is cultural transformation. And I think in this moment, looking around us, we are questioning for the first time the, the idea that um, a number of principles that in a way have been completely part of the orthodoxy that have been dogmatic from modernism on, um, one of which could, for example, perhaps the most important of which could be growth. The idea that growth, as we understand it in, in material terms, in terms of our um, ability to transform um, the uh, economy at the expense of transforming the environment, for example, this is something that's being questioned finally. And this is something that's been needed to be questioned for a long time, because, of course, the uh, just as... <clears throat> The uh, our ability to transform the landscape around us, to transform nature itself has accelerated, so has the impact that we've had on nature. And I really see like in a new generation of designers a, a, a set of people who are questioning not just how we do things, but why we're doing them. As Joseph Grimat described there, we are witnessing a cultural shift in the world in terms of how we approach the environment and parallels can be made in terms of social shifts too, such as those concerning notions of inclusion and representation. All the way back on episode two, we observed a planet that was divided, where segregation based on race, gender and opportunity is ever present. And we heard how one way to overcome these deep social cracks was to devise a new way of looking at the planet an approach that transcended prescribed values and deeply ingrained systems, economic or otherwise. Essentially, we were talking about the very cultural transformation that Joseph Grima is telling us about referencing design. We'll hear plenty more from Joseph, but first, staying on the subject of the need to rethink the way we look at culture, we move into literature and the world of books. The killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man by a police officer at a petrol station in Minneapolis in March of 2020, provoked the Black Lives Matter movement for racial justice in the United States. It soon resulted in some deep soul searches in many societies far beyond that too, including in the United Kingdom. 
Although we are mainly seeking perspectives from various fields within the realms of design on this episode, now we discuss cultural innovation, or simply a cultural shift that is occurring in the world of publishing, largely thanks to people like our next guest. Charmaine Lovegrove is founder of Dialogue Books, which has built its foundations on the idea that through storytelling, a dialogue is created to engender a more inclusive, nuanced conversation about experiences in our world. I began by asking Charmaine to chart what has been the staggering underrepresentation of black voices in English literature until now. Yeah, so I feel as though um, it's the inequality um, in publishing and the lack of diversity is something that's still really being understood. And I think the reason for that is because the same people who have always worked in publishing are still working in publishing and have sort of risen to the top. And for them to kind of take responsibility and culpability for the situation is something that I think it will take a long time to do. And then that sort of trickle down approach um, of how that affects kind of senior managers. And then um, and then on the outside, the people who are applying for jobs, um, you know, if, if an industry doesn't look diverse and creative and interesting, you're not going to get a diverse, creative and interesting um, group of people um, coming through. So the way that I got my job as a publisher, and I'm the first black person to run a publishing imprint in a corporate publishing house, um, and the way that I got my job was through the statistic that out of 165,000 books that were published in 2016, less than 100 were by people of colour and only one black male debut now was published. And now, you know, the thing that's really clear to me is that black writers and writers of colour, um, we hold a incredibly rich and dynamic way of seeing the world because we understand, a lot of us understand whiteness because we live in majority white countries, but we also have our cultures that come from our home and from the countries that our family originate from. And that um, multiplicity and um, of cultures, um, you know, brings rich, varied, interesting perspectives on the world. And so that we've been excluded for so long um, is just unthinkable to me um, and makes me makes me really, really angry. Um, and it is staggering. It is a staggering um, fact. And I think that the 18, you know, literature from 1800s has kind of trumped this idea of like what literature should be, um, this sort of European thought, um, whilst um, ignoring the fact that as black people, for example, we come from thousands of years of of narrative storytelling um, that's been handed down despite the brutality that's been inflicted upon us and our ancestors. So that's um, the background. And if we kind of turn to today and um, this year, it's been a momentous year uh, with Black Lives Matter movements um, hitting the front pages in, in, in many countries, not just uh, the United States, and also in the United Kingdom uh, to uh, a great extent. With that news and that kind of activism being so prominent, you went about um, setting up the Black Writers Guild, which you founded. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you hope to achieve with it? 
Yeah, so it was um, originally started um, with, by Nels Abbey and Afwahash, who were both writers, and then within sort of 24 hours of um, hearing their plans to convene 200 writers, um, black black writers in the UK, um, then it became really clear that it was something that I could get involved in. And so I became a founding organiser from the beginning. And um, the what we did is we held a meeting with 200 black writers and said, you know, what is it that you feel that you need? What is it that you feel lacking? And some of what, what is your experience? And from that, we drafted a letter and we had an eight point letter that we sent to all the major publishers in the UK um, to request everything from better data and stats, ring fence marketing, more editors, salespeople, marketing across um, across the um, industry. I mean, everything that we focus on is around black people rather than BAME, um, because I feel as though we've been, um, we all feel as though we've, we've been sort of sidelined in this argument around representation um, in, because um, there's an Asian minority that, um, that have actually been able to take the place. And the government do this as well. They talk about, you know, the most diverse cabinet, but they don't have any black people. So what we really want to do is sort of focus on where black narratives, black people have been missing as we are the largest percentage of ethnic minorities in um, in the UK. And from that letter, we've had an incredible response from the um, publishing industry. And the response has been really amazing in large because the letter was so clear because it sets out exactly what could be done what should be done what we what we demand to be done but also in a really collaborative way that was founder of dialogue books charmaine lovegrove there talking about the black writers guild which she helped set up in 2020 and we'll hear more from charmaine later in the episode According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word innovative comes from the Latin novare, or to make new. In her attempts to transform or make new the publishing industry, Charmaine can be seen as a cultural innovator. But what about the making and the design of the new in a material sense? Back to my conversation with curator, architect and researcher Joseph Grima. If we want to be innovative, do we have to wipe clear the architecture and design of the 20th century from our consciousness? After all, one could argue that much environmental damage and destruction resulted from that period. Absolutely, of course. I mean, the, the 20th century is one of the most marvellous in terms of the achievements of um, design. Uh, it was a moment of incredible um, innovation and incredible uh, in many ways, uh, beauty and um, and 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 the kind of conquest of new levels of imagination um, in all sorts of ways. But I think it was also a moment of inebriation. Uh, this power we were inebriated by our power to tra- change things, to transform them, to overcome uh, the world around us, um, which we had almost like a kind of a vendetta for the extreme um, st- the the extreme amounts of suffering and struggle that were required to exist on this planet and uh, and 
I mean, I think that the it, so it's absolutely something that's not wiped off to be wiped off the table, um, and of course, much is to be learned from it. And I think that um, the kind of scientific knowledge accumulated uh, at an accelerated pace throughout the course of, course of the twentieth century is incredibly important. But that knowledge, we need to use it in a different way. Um, instead of this sort of um, uh, drunken power, we need to think about how this can, in a way, bring us closer to the environment around us. That was Joseph Grima there, and more from him later. But now, focusing on that theme of knowledge, of deciphering the world and attempting to understand it. Increasingly, it seems that we go about this with the help of data, the collection of large amounts of information presented to the reader for analysis. In fact, how we present data might be just as important as what data is gathered. After all, there is little point in collecting or publishing numbers and statistics if nobody will understand them. So clearly, the visualizing skills of a designer are needed when it comes to data. Giorgia Lupi is an Italian information designer based in New York. She is co-founder of research and design firm Accurat, and since 2019 has been a partner at the prestigious design agency Pentagram. I spoke to Georgia all the way back at the end of 2020, which, with the emergence of COVID-19 and an unprecedentedly important US presidential election, proved a very big year for data. Well, 2020 has been or is still so far really quite an important year in terms of data and how the general public has been exposed to data. Uh, if you think about it, um, it, we, it, it the whole past from being just a few of us who are data professionals and work with data every day, really cared about data, to pretty much everybody. Because since the beginning of the pandemic, we started to live and breathe by the daily data refreshes that we have from our own government. And especially, I mean, I live in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo started to have a media very relevant pre presence about the daily data brief and the charts that everybody was presented with around the new number of cases, the number of new cases, the number of new hospitalizations, death rates, uh, and the infection rate. So many, many numbers. And um, of course, we have learned by looking at them how to interpret most of these numbers. But I think as an information designer and, you know, thinking about our data literacy as a population for the future, that there are um, really a lot of opportunities to use this moment in time. And again, at this moment, I'm not talking about the pandemic on the election, but really to make us as a population more data literate, because we really need to ask ourselves, do we know how to interpret these numbers? Do we know enough about how these data have been collected? What has been left out? Do we know enough about how to for ourselves, correlate many different sources of information that have been presented to us. But the thing that I really would like to discuss with you and to think about is how can we use this moment to make everybody more aware of what data even means? Yeah, and I wanted to uh, talk about that kind of unpacking and looking below the surface, really kind of uh, investigating what data means in its very essence. But first, I just wanted to you're kind of leading me on to perhaps thinking about what happens if data is not done right, let's say, if it's misused or if it's misinterpreted or if there's bad data around. Can we talk about bad data or, or, or lazy data or, 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 or just misinformed data? I don't know. Like, can we start with what things can go wrong? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think fundamentally it's about um, understanding that data is primarily human-made. And I like always to say that even if data comes from a sensor, well, a human being designed the sensor and decided what to collect and what to leave out. And so if we think about data as an abstraction of our reality, we start thinking about, okay, every data set that I see is in any case subject to an interpretation because it was somebody that collected it. And so thinking about that, well, you know, there's also things that we don't know uh, how to collect and things that might have been left out. And so this is why I think that to do data good is not about having all of the data, all of the information and presenting everything, but it's really, for example, starting to treat missing data as data points. The thing that we don't know needs to go into the data set and into the charts as much as the thing that we know, or using and embracing some uncertainty in data and showing even visually the fuzziness of a possible data set that we, you know, kind of like know that it's not certain. Think about the election, the visualizations of the polls, most of the times, I would say not in all charts, but most of the times felt really like a reality, a truth. Like, you know, 49 versus 51, it felt so precise that we as a population started to think that this is a reality. And I think that this is the premise that we have to always consider in talking about good data, bad data, misinterpretation and misinformation. It's really about making sure that who decided what to collect and what to leave out um, is really open to share this with people. Because again, having data is absolutely better than not having data, but data is not a perfect uh, representation of reality. So that is what we always have to keep in mind. It strikes me there that um, we're talking about kind of visualization skills there quite a lot. So how that kind of basic or fundamental design know-how or, or visualization, even artistic know-how is really important there. Like you're talking about how do we uh, represent things that we don't know, gaps, holes in data. Is that where you think as, as a designer you have to work hard to express and convey those gaps. I'm thinking really visually now. It's quite hard to talk about it uh, on the radio, as it were. But but can you kind of give me an, uh, a feeling of how you might go about plugging those gaps? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I come to data from a design perspective. I define myself an information designer. So I'm not a statistician. I'm not a computer scientist. I really work with data from a design perspective. That means that I, uh, every day with my team, uh, design ways in which our clients, my clients, uh, and their clients access different kind of information visually. And from a design perspective, I think in any case, it's about understanding. Um, so what is the main, let's say, story or takeaways? What is the first thing that we want as you know people who collaborate directly with expert in the data uh, our readers to take out um, from that and then consequently you need to think about okay do I shape this data along a timeline because the time aspect is the most important one or for example do I group this data according to some categories that I want to highlight patterns of and so it's really really about giving people access to what they cannot see on a spreadsheet and so organizing data visually and of course I mean um, the more that you paint a picture say you create a static chart the more the, the more a 
authorial you are as a designer because you do decide how to display this data and that is the snapshot that you're communicating to the readers. The more you're able to create interactive experiences, so say digital experiences, mobile or desktop, where people can actually go and filter out and organize and kind of like directly um, make inquiries to the data because of how designed the interface, well, the more you're kind of like more of a facilitator as a designer rather than an author. So of course, there's spectrum depending on the level of interactivity, depending on the goals. Yeah, I basically asked you how long is a piece of string? Um, or, or maybe how how do you write a book? <laughs> it's kind exactly. of a, it's kind of a big big question. Um, but maybe we can focus a little bit on. And I know you wanted to talk about um, what you've coined as the as data humanism or the humanity of design. Correct me if I'm wrong. How you kind of make these visualizations relatable, let's say, and some recent projects maybe strike me as very, very much in that vein. A recent cover you did for uh, the New York Times, you actually mentioned there, maybe just kind of visualize for me that project and and also this concept that you've coined of data humanism. Sure. So the data humanism is actually kind of simple as an idea, and uh, we touched upon that already. Uh, to me, is the an approach to data where we should always, always aim to reconnect numbers to what they stand for, to the context that they've been created into, to the fact that when we represent the data, we should not represent only the numbers, but really what they represent. And so it's about adding context, uh, adding dimensions, and really focusing also on stories that people People can relate to because what I have found in my experience as a designer who works with data is that we cannot really as human beings relate to only aggregated percentages. We need to figure out how these numbers affect our lives and have clear examples of how these data really are actually generated by our behavior, by how we're swiping a credit card. And so really starting granular and personal and having people understand that that, you know, that is also what then becomes part of a data set. So this is kind of like the overall philosophy that um, you know also embraces small data which are the way that we understand big data uh, embraces even a more handcrafted approach to data that is what makes people actually feel that this is a worm kind of material that they can relate to and this is also the approach that I have used um, on the New York Times at home cover so I had this great opportunity to design the cover for this Sunday supplement that is called at home uh, for the New York Times um, and uh, well the brief was kind of interesting because they called me and they said, you know, Georgia, we are pretty sure that you have some data that you collected from the pandemic, or even we can look at headlines, we can look at everything that is like, you know, the 2020 in data and, you know, give us your interpretation. And I thought a lot about, you know, everything that I could possibly display, a timeline of the New York, for example, uh, you know, the cases that went up and the shutdowns and the reopening and also uh, links to any other international country. And then I looked at, you know, all the data that I collected about myself, which are, you know, the calendar, because I usually and always write what I do and who I see. And, you know, I really have a kind of like a calendar that is about a journal. And also I have a journal that I write on too. But then I thought I have all my text conversations. So there's so 
so much data, but ultimately, what is a story that I feel that everybody can relate to in 2020? And I decided to design a story of our lasts and our firsts. So for example, in New York, there's a really clear threshold that is March 15, where everything precipitated and everything closed down. And I really remember like if looking at my calendar that before then there was a series of say last time that I went to a restaurant, like time that I saw my coworkers, like time that I took the subway, the last time that I went to the office. But then, you know, you go back a few months, even at the beginning of the year when you didn't know that the pandemic was, you know, about to happen. And I have my last trip to Italy, the last time that I saw my mom, the last, you know, concert that I went to. And there, there is a sort of embedded hopefulness in, in that project, certainly in terms of waiting to tick off or, or to mark that first after all the various deprivations that, that we've had. And I wanted to maybe ask you, do you think there's a lot of kind of negative associations with data? People talk about hard data, cold data, data farming. There's this sort of ominous uh, notion of it, uh, a threatening feeling. Um, do you think what you're trying to do is also encourage people to look at it in, in a positive way. Yeah, I, you know, personally, I see data as really beautiful. To me, data is the way that I see the world through, like it's really a lens and a filter that I apply just because of the way I am to everything. And so it's the way that I kind of like, you know, create um, some tools that then I use as a narrative material. So for me, data are, and actually, you know, I use the plural because to me, data are data points. And so to me, data are really beautiful and they can be interesting materials to tell our personal stories if we embrace, uh, you know, this data mentality. And also, again, in the broader sense of, you know, the scariness that we have about data and how we feel that data can be, um, again, a, a material that can be used against us. Well, again, it's really always embracing the fact that there's always someone who decides how to use them. And so data in and on itself is not good or evil, is a tool that if we are able to get to know better and to, um, you know, get to understand, we will be able, I think, in the future to use more and more to understand more about ourselves and our society and tell personal stories that uh, we can all actually relate to. So I am a data optimist. That was information designer Georgia Lupi, who is based in New York. Staying in the US, although crossing to its west coast and to Portland, Oregon, and staying very much on the subject of design innovation is our next guest. Matthew Claudel's research at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and elsewhere is largely devoted to understanding how we can develop alternative organisational models to improve cities. He was also working on vaccination rollouts across many states in the US. I spoke to him back at the end of 2020 about how tech innovation is changing our systems for better or worse. And we also discussed to what extent the pandemic has pushed innovative responses that have long-term benefits. Hi, my name is Matthew Claudel. Um, my background is in design and architecture. Um, and advanced urbanism. Uh, I did my doctoral work at MIT um, on uh, urban science, and I've been really interested in a few key ideas recently. Um, those are the idea of future value, um, and then how do we think about collective value in the future? Um, I've been thinking about alternative organizational models, 
So these are different business structures in terms of governance and investment and accountability and returns, specifically alternatives to the Silicon Valley startup model. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about collective intelligence, how we can work together to solve complex challenges. The pandemic has been a leveler. It has been a shared experience. And it has also been something that exacerbated inequalities. Not everyone has lived the same pandemic experience. Everyone is subject to the same, um, you know, a biological agents coming into our very lungs. There's nothing more personal and nothing more equal than that. Um, so I think both are true. Um, and the, the pandemic has been absolutely unprecedented. It's been a time of exceptions. Um, we've seen that on a few different levels. We've seen small businesses um, come together in new ways to figure out their supply chains. We've seen art being shown in new ways um, that have been fresh and exciting and, and leveraging digital tools. Um, we've also seen justification and, and uh, really troubling extensions of state surveillance power, for example. We've also seen just how broken the United States healthcare system is. Um, our president, our former president, received the kinds of healthcare that uh, nothing but the very crust of 1% could afford in the United States. Um, and we've seen lives lost. So again, it, it's um, been a leveler and it's been, uh, it's exacerbated inequalities. It's also been um, an exception uh, in these, these two different ways. Um, something I found really compelling is uh, an analysis by Scott Galloway, who's an economist. Um, his recent work showed that the pandemic hasn't been very exceptional at all in some ways. Um, in every key indicator that he looked at, specifically within our economy, he saw that the, the pandemic has actually accelerated trends that already existed in the economy. Um, and he found that we've jumped a decade within the space of a year along trajectories uh, that already existed. So that's, um, you know, housing crises. And that's also um, the stock prices of certain kinds of companies. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to learn from this experience and to say, sure, it's, um, it's simple to say it's a leveler. Uh, it's also simple to say it's exacerbated inequalities um, and neither is completely true. Um, what's important is that we examine what's broken in our society and government and economy. Uh, so in the United States, um, healthcare is the obvious one. Um, we also can see how broken uh, government is and how we don't have really good tools of collective decision making. Right. So um, th there's a kind of a very mixed picture there. If we kind of lead on to kind of more practical implications and maybe ways, tools in which we can start to uh, deal with uh, the, the effects of the pandemic, um, social effects, to a large extent, we've sort of started to become reliant on, on technical innovation, especially in, in our cities, and you've uh, researched this a lot. Can you tell me how perhaps we've become over-reliant, or maybe there's the notion that we should just follow the lead of tech innovators kind of blindly and presume that a clutch of tech people have all the knowledge, all the skills that will really kind of make our cities and our, our planet better. 
Sure. Um, I think it's, that's true. That's absolutely true. It's a little bit too easy to vilify the tech innovators um, and, and to say that uh, there's this cadre of people that are causing all the problems. And so rather than saying, you know, maybe we should question those people producing innovation, which we certainly should, um, what we really need to be doing is questioning some of the basic premises of innovation, specifically entre entrepreneurial approaches to putting innovation out in the world. Um, and what we don't do well is uh, use models that are different than the Silicon Valley, scale fast, grow, uh, make huge margins, disrupt, um, you know, move at all costs. Um, and this is something I spent a lot of my time at MIT focusing on. MIT is a place that has tons of innovation, um, tons of people who also have a really clear moral commitment to making the world a better place. Um, and uh, what, what I saw was that in many cases, you had people specifically in the field of design, architecture, media, real estate, um, which, is, which is my own field and a field that needs a lot of innovation. Um, you had plenty of people who were developing great ideas and what they didn't have was any kind of model other than the Silicon Valley startup model for putting their ideas in the world. Um, so addressing that, that gap uh, was the reason why we started a program called DesignX. And that program existed to give tools and to build knowledge around pursuing innovation in design in cities in the built environment. Um, so one of the, the key factors that you brought up was long-termism. Um, in, in a Silicon Valley boardroom, you want to see short-term returns and you want to see um, really steep returns. For cities, you want to see long-term value creation. And, and that might be slow. It might be incremental over time. It might be incremental, especially in early phases. But if you're building a deep, well-knit social infrastructure, that's going to pay dividends in the long run. Um, it's going to mean that there's not a few people making a ton of money. It's, it means that there's going to be a collective building of value and wealth. Um, another key factor is, is thinking about those things that have value, but the value can't really be quantified and it can't be um, precised in an in a economic sense. Um, and something like collective health and well-being is, is obviously massively urgent right now, and it's something that's hard to ascribe a financial value to. Something like economic well, uh, sorry, um, ecological well-being. That's something it's hard to assign a very specific um, economic value to. We can spend a lot of time thinking about how to create economic models that describe these uh, qualitative and ineffable things. But I think um, much more interesting is to look at ways of creating new accountabilities and new social contracts that acknowledge the collective value of uh, some of these qualitative factors. And there's this kind of dilemma in, in what you're saying. There's the question of this immediate crisis. Let's look at the pandemic, obviously, the COVID-19 crisis that is occurring. That's the immediacy of it. And then there's the long-termist thinking that you've talked about. And 
how can those two be reconciled? And I wanted to know maybe has this crisis kind of spurred innovation on at a speed that otherwise it wouldn't have happened to a positive effect, in your opinion? Do you think there has been long-termist thinking behind a lot of the the developments in in terms of innovation? And is that kind of getting us in the right direction, in in your view? Um, I think it has. I think in the cases when it has spurred innovation, um, those are situations where you already have a solid base, a solid infrastructure of social accountability and acknowledgement of uh, shared value and acknowledgement that we exist together. Um, Bruno Latour has a really beautiful way of thinking about um, coming down to earth, acknowledging that we are here on this earth together. And uh, when that is reflected in, in government and in digital culture, you get some really interesting innovation. Um, I, I worked a little bit with um, Audrey Tang, who's the digital minister of Taiwan, on a project uh, for the Site magazine that brought contributors to reflect and describe experiences early in the pandemic. And Audrey Tang was describing how the government of Taiwan responded to the pandemic and built uh, digital tools that gave um, citizens uh, new ways of, uh, for example, uh, accessing their mask allocation. And in some cases, um, giving their mask allocation to folks in need. And those tools were built through bottom-up civic participation, um, kind of people hacking together various systems. Um, And and the the important point here is that in Taiwan, there was an existing culture of uh, acknowledging collective well-being. And there was an existing baseline of digital literacy where everyone has a fundamental digital education from a very early age. Um, And so those are places where innovation could very quickly turn toward uh, building solutions that were really robust and perhaps long term in the context of a pandemic where you've seen innovation not be built, I think, in a a really robust way is when you have um, kind of backwards looking value models. In other words, uh, the insurance system of the United States. When we spoke a little little while ago, um, we kind of concluded, would you say that you're attempting to, uh, in a way, kind of provide mass vaccination for the economy, for society, rather than if we take the kind of parable of this health situation, can that be applied to societies at large? Yeah, sure. I mean, what we can't have is uh, micro vaccination. We can't have certain populations be vaccinated and others left to to suffer. Um, and that's really obvious from an immunization standpoint and from uh, you know a transmittable disease standpoint, right? Because if you're vaccinating only a few, you're never going to have population scale immunity. Uh, the same is true of of the economy. You can't vaccinate, so to speak, certain members of the economy so that they're immune to any kind of financial trouble and expect the population to be healthy economically. Um, And so what I think we need to consider is uh, mass vaccination for the economy. Um, 
and it seems like a, a trite bit of wordplay. Um, but that kind of approach is going to cause robust um, collective well-being on all fronts. Um, and in many cases, what you see is that uh, outcomes are really multi-endpoint. So if we're talking about physical health, um, of course, that means hospitals. Of course, it means doses of vaccine when that's necessary. It also means uh, robust food systems. It means that we have transportation infrastructure that prioritize um, active modes of transit. Um, and so, you know, talking about mass vaccinating the economy, it's a buzzword, uh, but it also has some really important implications for how we think about government and the economy and uh, infrastructure in our cities. That was designer, researcher and writer Matthew Claudel and I pondering on whether it is possible to vaccinate a whole economy rather than only one individual. As we see now in mid-2021, the problem of leaving entire regions of the world without sufficient vaccines or having large amounts of unvaccinated people within the populations of countries such as the US are critical concerns of global policymakers. Back to Joseph Grima, who, keeping the conversation sufficiently planetary on From the Moon, tells me about geodesign, a term and way of thinking that Grima has coined and also developed into a research programme at the renowned Design Academy Eindhoven in the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean, geodesign is part of <clears throat> a project to rethink design uh, on a way that is less, um, that, that's more ambitious, first of all, that kind of doesn't concern itself simply with um, uh, the trivialities of solving minor problems such as uh, where to sit down or what kind of table to eat off, but really looks what, which I think is the kind of the big design, the greatest design challenge in front of us, which is Thinking, rethinking existence on the planet at a systemic level. Um, and like I said, this isn't about geoengineering or about solving the uh, environmental problems that face us through technological means, but it's thinking about how we can achieve well-being and um, a degree of prosperity in a way that is not uh, orthogonal to the uh, well-being of the planet itself, but that's actually parallel to it, that somehow converges in a kind of a symbiotic relationship. And so geodesign is, uh, first of all, a way of looking at at least the geodesign, the way we understand it at Design Academy and the way it's being taught in our new masters, uh, which is led by Forma Fantasma, uh, is first of all, um, an analytical process. It's a way of looking at the world, understanding how the world operates in uh, in terms of um, material flows, in terms of um, uh, macroeconomics, in terms of um, the way that we understand the um, the the operations of nature and the and distribution of resources. And then in order to then be able to intervene in that, um, and in in order to be able to transform, first of all, not nature but human, human operations, human behavior itself. So it's very much a kind of a behavioral design in that sense in that we don't necessarily see um, the output of the designer having necessarily material form. Um, it can, in fact, be strategic. It's something that can, uh, in fact, I think in this moment, it's much more important that it's strategic and it doesn't take material form. We, in a way, are more urgently in need of a rewind and a step away from, stepping away from kind of the uh, idea of material production rather than accelerating it. And kind of finally, if we kind of look 
maybe the concept of geo design as a whole might give one hope or, or gives you you hope but kind of specifically what reasons uh, or what kind of trends or or things you look at or, or maybe a particular design or or designer or work can you point to that gives you hope on a personal level I think the um, geodesign, in a way, is, as I was saying, is part of a larger project, which is to rethink the kind of goals and ambitions of designers in the context of um, the contemporary social um, and geopolitical and economic landscape. Um, and uh, so I would, I would actually say that the larger project that this fits into um, is uh, one that is running in parallel um, through my studio called Space Caviar, which is uh, in which we're looking at the idea of um, a non-extractive design, you could term it, or a non-extractive architecture. In other words, uh, a form of design or a form of architectural practice that is not based on extraction. Um, and by extraction, we don't simply mean mining, that we stop mining or we stop quarrying or we stop um, extracting um, fossil fuels or marble or any other sort of natural uh, resource. Of course, that's part of it. That's something that we need to reduce and that um, we intend to reduce. But more uh, kind of on a, on a wider scale, what we're looking at is the possibility of a form of practice that is non-exploitative, that is not based on essentially what creating what in economics is called externalities. In other words, unpaid costs that are relocated elsewhere. So an example of that, says Joseph, is concrete, a material and so-called golden child of modernism that was 100 years ago viewed as a miracle material, thanks to it being relatively inexpensive and extremely malleable and strong. However, even before you add any energy costs associated with running buildings, simply the curing and extraction processes of concrete account for a full 8% of carbon emissions on the planet. 8% just for one material. In addition, owing to its incredibly widespread use, sand, the main ingredient of concrete, has now become the second most widely extracted and utilised natural resource after fresh water and sand is becoming increasingly scarce at sites of extraction of the right kind of sand needed to make concrete, from the seafloor or riverbeds. We believe that um, we can actually retool and rethink architecture from scratch or design from scratch in order for it to actually be take responsibility to not create externalities, to take um, uh, empower itself over um, the uh, the full uh, chain of supply for everything that goes into it, the way the kind of the economies it creates, the labour that is needed, and actually become a force for integrating societies, bringing communities together, giving work, creating new economies, as opposed to simply for the sake of make, sake of making it cheap and more ambitious and. Um, better performing or whatever, causing problems elsewhere. And so what we're actually doing is charting, mapping um, in a project that will be um, unfolding in Venice throughout the course of um, 2021 uh, in collaboration with um, VAC Foundation. Um, we're essentially mapping, um, make, creating a, a map on a global level of studios, practices, designers, um, it's also outside of the design world, um, economists, um, sociologists, anthropologists, 
who are thinking about this, these kind of matters and attempting to um, introduce a new model, to pioneer a new way of thinking about the practice of essentially existence on this planet in all the different forms that it takes. Um, in, and, and really using it as an opportunity to go back to first principles, taking nothing for granted, nothing is axiomatic, nothing is dogmatic, um, there is no orthodoxy, we need to question everything. And of course, this brings us to question a lot of the principles that capitalism itself is based on, um, to question a lot of the ideas that um, our economies, the economies that we operate within are based on, um, and to even kind of come across uh, occasionally as quite heretical. Uh, but these, this is what we think is necessary. And I must say that the um, research, which is in its early stages, is um, incredibly promising. Um, uh, and there's, uh, we really feel that this is a sentiment that um, is permeating it's a new generation of designers. That was Joseph Grima there telling us about some of the new tendencies and practice toward an environmentally centred way of thinking about architecture and design. Focused on sustainability and non-exploitative ways of sourcing materials and labour. Not least through the Geo Design Masters programme Joseph established at the Design Academy Eindhoven and Non-Extractive Architecture, an exhibition and research programme at the VAC Cultural Institution in Venice on until January 2022. For Joseph, a hopeful or optimistic vision of the future is based on what he sees as the next generation of designers who are acting as agents of change. Having an active role in shaping the future is something that Charmaine Lovegrove, founder of Dialogue Books, who we heard from at the beginning of the show, can relate to. Let's go back to our conversation on hope. I wanted to know if it is even useful or relevant to use the word hope in reference to the future. I want to kind of get on to the, what we're trying to kind of discuss uh, in, on this episode, and that's the notion of hope. And... I realised that, I mean, the very word hope has a bit of a political history. If we look back to um, Barack Obama's uh, political campaign in 2008, that was centred on hope. Uh, it, it, comes, it comes back again and again, especially when uh, we go through such um, turbulent uh, movements like the Black Lives Matter this year, uh, but, but, but others before that. And then people kind of have this notion of hope do you think it's problematic to look at it that simplistically and what what, what do you think we we are entitled to have hope to be hopeful i definitely think hope is sort of a really problematic phrase um I feel as though, you know, anyone can be entitled to, to feel how they want to feel. Like, first of all, that's really clear. If you want to feel hopeful, you can feel hopeful. But my issue with the word is that um, it means standing on the sidelines and sort of asking other people to do the work. You know, I hope that something will happen. Well, if I, I um, generally, when I hope for something, it's out of my hands. You know, it's like I... I've done an exam or I've submitted something and all I can do is hope that the judges believe that the work that I've submitted or the examiner or whatever, that, that I hope that they will see um, the brilliance in what I have submitted and award me um, righteously. However, you know, from my position, um, I've, I haven't really been afforded as a black woman, I haven't really been afforded that um, notion of hope. 
um, without the statistic that I mentioned earlier, you know, I wouldn't have got my job as a publisher. And that's a real shame to think about, you know, that it comes from everything sort of born out of activism and um, a moment of asking a question and creating of opportunities. And that wasn't like, I hope that someone will um, let me become a publisher one day. That was a kind of um, in, within a moment, um, a forced action. And I think that um, the difference between hope um, and action are really huge. And I think in a time of, a time of activism, um, then what we need is more um, trust and collaboration and engagement and understanding. Um, and the, the hope can, can come to those that um, are on the sidelines. So you're, you kind of espouse having a proactive uh, role in, in ach- achieving some goals, your goals. It's not, you, you feel like hope is, is a kind of, it, it's almost um, it's passive. passive. Or, yeah, I definitely see it as something that is, um, is passive because, you know, it's taking out, it's outside of yourself. And anything that's outside of yourself means that you can't, um, you can't, you're not digging deep and doing all you can. You're not rolling up your sleeves and, um, and um, you know, getting, getting your hands dirty and getting absolutely to kind of the crux of the, of, the, of the situation to create change. And what we need is not sort of, I don't hope we, change, we create change, we must, I demand that we create change. I demand that change um, is, happens because the world needs to be different because for too long, too many people have been excluded and that's not acceptable. Um, to hope that we will be included is is um, is something for someone for someone else. I mean, I'm not. It's just something that I've. It's an. It's a really interesting to think about it in terms of sort of Obama um, and that campaign. And I think we were hopeful because it wasn't in our hands. I think in the UK we were hopeful. I couldn't vote, so it was really easy for me to be hopeful. Um, um, but what we saw in this election was that it was about the, the power to change, the power for something different and not allowing for hate to continue. And so in order for that to happen, then people like Stacey Abrahams had to had to get everything that they could and dig the deepest that she could in order to make sure that voting was fair and equal. And, you know, I think she got something like 80,000 um black um, former prisoners to be allowed to vote, for example. I'm just sort of overturned, you know, imagine you've been to prison, you've done, you've done your time. And, you know, if you're black in America, then you've probably been to prison for something really crazy, like carrying 10 pounds worth of cannabis, for example. You know, it's like, it, they're not heinous crimes. These are not mass murderers that we're talking about. These are just simple people getting on with their business who are just looking for a chill and going to prison and then never being allowed to vote again. And so having someone like Stacey Abrahams as activism, that's active, I can only hope for an outcome because I'm on the other side of the world and I can't actively participate in that. Okay, you've made that quite clear. At the same time, just to end, are there, I mean, maybe we, 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 you, can, you can look at things perhaps that make you hopeful. You maybe can identify things that, that give you cause... Um, for some hope, let's let's say. Yeah. Um, and would, it's... Would you, are there some things kind of, if, if we just look maybe 
one year into the future, then 10 years, what, what, what gives you some degree of hope? You know, in terms of publishing, I feel like I'm actively in it. So I, it's like I'm forcing the, the rate of change. So it's like I, I wish that there was someone else who was black who was running an imprint like myself. And I wish that there were more black people, more black writers. And I wish that there was equality. So that's what I work towards. But I hope that by the time my... Um, my child and his friends and like my nieces and nephews, I hope that when the younger generation um, are our age, that they're not having to fight for the same levels of um, equality in the way that, you know, I'm sure that my uncle who founded the Black Cultural Archives, which is a um, black um, archivist um, heritage museum in, um, in Brixton, I'm sure that when he, in 1981, when he founded it, year I was born, I'm sure he hoped that I would never have to be in a position of being an activist. And um, he got close, but we didn't get close enough. And so we're still here fighting. So my big hope for the future is that we don't have to keep talking about ourselves as black people um, um, without having the signifiers of equality. I hope that we can still be really proud of our culture um, be completely um, integrated, but you know, still hold on to who we are um, and our cultural um, differences, um, whilst that means equality. And you know, that's my sort of. I really hope that the work that we're doing now means that um, the the future is brighter and more equal for um, a whole host of people from different backgrounds, genders. Um, um, economic situations because I think that that's that's the future that we that we really need to see and I am hopeful for that. A big thank you to Charmaine Lovegrove we heard from there telling us about what she is hopeful for in the future. Importantly as Charmaine made very clear hoping for something is never enough to affect any real change. For Charmaine and many others like her change only comes through active interventions by speaking out, sharing knowledge and interrupting the status quo. In terms of design, Joseph Grima too is setting the bar very high. But finally, and to end, I wanted to know how he might answer sceptics who would call his vision too idealistic. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that um, that's, that's kind of the intention in the sense that Without an uh, uh, an ideological framework, whether or not you kind of uh, class it as idealistic or not, but I think it, it needs to be ideological. Um, the I can give one example of one of the participants um, of um, just to kind of stay in Milan. Um, there is a uh, a group um, called uh, Inerti, which has recently formed um, of. Um, relatively young architects, kind of at the early career stage, um, who uh, have come out of um, a number of kind of previous practices of um, uh, looking at the kind of material cycles and so on, and, uh, and, uh, and the formation as designers in a more sort of conventional sense, kind of coming out of architecture school in Italy. But what they're interested actually in is not in the way that any designer is taught um, to go out into the world and start building things, what they're actually interested in is deconstruction uh, and the idea of what happens to materials once a building is no longer used. And I think that this is actually, uh, it's as good as an, an example as any of the way that our, we are conditioned by a certain set of ideas that are completely arbitrary, you know, that architects are there to design new buildings, uh, which is the kind of the common assumption. 
I think it's just as important for architects to be designing how buildings are taken apart. What happens to those materials? Uh, and that's the form of design that I'm interested in. Uh, I think that that's the, the kind of design that's going to take us into the next level. And we're just going to look back at this period, incredibly wasteful and arrogant period of um, domination of nature and think it was just completely crazy. That was the creative director of the Design Academy, Eindhoven, and co-founder of the design research studio Space Caveat, Joseph Grima there. Bringing us to the end of episode seven of From the Moon and the end of series one. We have observed a world of known and very visible problems. Social, political, and environmental cracks are appearing and widening across planet Earth. We have also glimpsed into the unknown, into the realms of unleashed potential and into new ways of thinking. Entangled yet divided, there is despair and, as we've just heard, quite a bit of hope on the planet too. Thank you for joining us on this journey and we'll be back with season two of From the Moon in the not-too-distant future. This podcast is brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, and it was produced by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing was by Alex Portfelix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. Drama.